Why don't we pray one more time? Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing uh, on His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You now, Lord, and we thank You again for this glorious, glorious um, text that we have read and the realities that are contained therein. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to see truly the glory of the new covenant in which we now stand. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would give us a mind, uh, Father, that is sanctified and a heart that is, Lord, consecrated uh, to obey the new covenant, Lord, to live in light of the new covenant and to realize, Lord, what a great work Christ our Savior has done by His blood, His once-for-all sacrifice, Lord, that has uh, perfected the worshiper, that has cleansed our conscience, and that has made us to stand in the glorious freedom of this new covenant, Lord. Show us the practicality of what this covenant means for us now today. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So this is... um, Our last uh, part in looking at Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah 31 here quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, and it really has been uh, just marvelous to look at this prophecy. I have entitled this series of sermons, The Glory of the New Covenant, because that's what it is. And every week I tell you it's my last sermon, but (laughs) this really is the last one. But it's just so tremendous what is being said here. I want to read to you. The, the verses that we're focusing on today, which is verses 12 and 13, let's look at those two texts together again. It says this. This is what the Word of God says. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old is ready to disappear. So we are in this uh, place of Hebrews that is speaking about the transition between old covenant to new covenant and the reality and the weight and the significance that that brings upon these uh, believers in the church. Now, if you look back at verse 11, last time we looked at this verse of the prophecy here, Jeremiah, we saw the blessing of knowing the Lord, of the knowledge of God, uh, knowing God in covenant love, in covenant fullness. But here, the prophecy concludes with an explanation as to why this intimate knowledge of God is even possible. Why is it possible? And of course, namely, because we have had our sins forgiven in the new covenant. Uh, God's people always understood that God was a God of forgiveness. I think there's a major misunderstanding today, and wouldn't you agree? Many people look upon the old covenant, or let's say the Old Testament, as the time when God was mainly a God of wrath, when God was really an angry God. And if you want to get to the loving God, well, then you need to turn to the New Testament for that. But see, God's people always understood that God was a God of forgiveness, a God of grace, a God of mercy. And I can quote to you, for example, Exodus 34, 
verse 6, that says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, that is to Moses, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God has always been a God of forgiveness and grace and compassion. Matter of fact, Moses told the, the children of Israel as he, sang, as he gave them this benediction, he said, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Matter of fact, I would say from the very opening of the Bible, we see a God of grace. As early as Genesis chapter 3, we see the grace of God in light of sin. God covenanting together with man to save him by his grace. He tells Adam and Eve that he would raise up a seed from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That is a, a, a proclamation of grace. Matter of fact, it is the Proto-Evangelion. It is the first mention of the gospel in redemptive history. And so what we see in Scripture is, a, is one scene of grace after another. Matter of fact, Scripture begins by promising the grace of God, and Scripture ends with gr the grace of God being fully fulfilled in Christ. Jesus himself is the very bridge of the grace of God. That's why it says in John chapter 1, verse 16, that in Christ we have what? Grace upon grace. In Christ, we have a, an endless supply of the grace of God. But still, what this prophecy in Jeremiah shows us is that God's forgiveness was also a unique promise that was embedded in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, the prophecies of the prophets. For example, Micah chapter 7 the uniqueness of this, now that we know what it is, this new covenant forgiveness of God. Micah speaks of it when he says in Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and pass passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Where do we see this unchanging love? Where do we see the fulfillment of uh, what Micah calls the forgiveness of the rebellious act of the remnant? Well, we know the remnant is God's elect people contained in Old Covenant and New Covenant alike. So, for example, when Paul speaks of this very thing in Romans chapter 11, he says, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. There will be a deliverer that comes from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Now, of course, when the Apostle Paul envisions this, he is thinking only of elect Jews. That is the remnant, after all, as he makes very clear in Romans chapter 9, verse 27, and in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 7. It is the elect people of God, Jew and Gentile, from all time. 
And how are they forgiven? But now that the new covenant makes that completely clear, we know what it is. It is by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That is what the old covenant people looked upon in faith as they uh, engaged in Old, Old Testament and Old Covenant sacrifices. Those sacrifices, when they performed those, those sacrifices, they did so in a, in a way that was indicative that what they were doing on earth had some sort of correspondence in heaven in the greater sanctuary, in the greater holy place, on the greater altar, in the greater temple, in the greater tabernacle, with the greater blood of Jesus. As Gerhardus Voss says, the reality that the types symbolized would literally hover over the life of the Old Covenant people. Little did they know all of the fullness of what was contained in those types and shadows. But now we know because God has made that abundantly clear. And we see that right here in the last, we're going to cover two things in this text. The last, or what we can call the final benefit of the new covenant, and the final result of the new covenant. So mark down those two points. Because one thing that I am um, really intent on is making sure that at least at a fundamental level, you remember what were the two points, what were the three points you know, you know pastors are told to put together three-point sermons, right? So you'd better be able to remember the three points. Well, now I've got two, so you better remember two points, okay? That's easier than three, by the way. Point number one, the final benefit of the new covenant. And again, verse 12, what I would say is that all of the people of the new covenant, they will all experience the forgiveness of the new covenant. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Profound, profound statements that are spoken of here. And of course, you know that this benefit is absolutely foundational. Just walk through the text with me again. Go back up to chapter, uh, verse 9 of uh, this chapter. It is only because, and by foundational, what I mean is this, that it is only because of the forgiveness of sins that God will promise to take care of all of his people. And you see that by contrast when God in the Old Covenant did not take care of his Old Covenant people because of their sin. In the New Covenant, God will take care of every single one of us. Consequently, they, we will all have God's law inscribed into our heart and into our mind, verse 10. The beginning part of verse 10. And because of the forgiveness of sins, they will all be joined to God in perfect, perfect covenant fellowship where that phrase, He will be our God and we will be His people, that is made possible because of the forgiveness of sins, because of the shed blood of Jesus, because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. They will no longer be estranged, but, as verse 11 says, they will all know the Lord. And then a second aspect of that is that this covenant is now fully democratized, which means this, we will all, from the least of us to the greatest of us, uh, this is what G.K. Beale calls the priesthood of all believers. All believers will know the Lord from the least of them 
to the greatest of them, you are a priest unto your God. You need not come to a priest anymore for the knowledge of God. At a fundamental level, and we saw that last week, at a fundamental level, we all have the knowledge of God in a saving way. That knowledge, by the way, is also intended to ever increase in Christ. These are all benefits of the new covenant and all made possible entirely on the basis of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice on the cross for his people. The sacrifice of the new covenant answers man's greatest dilemma. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. This is the most basic fundamental purpose of the atonement because... It is the most basic and fundamental problem that we face. Be not deceived. Every problem that you have in this life pales in comparison to the problem of sin. Every problem that your family faces today, every problem that your community faces, your neighbors, your friends at work, tell me they don't come up to you and bellyache about the things that are going on in their lives. Tell me that you are not acquainted with people's complaints. Tell me that you yourself do not complain about many things. Oh, we do. But I tell you what, there is one chief dilemma that man faces, is that is the problem of sin, iniquity, transgression. Because you see, the Bible says that at the great white throne judgment, the books will be open. And in those books will be contained in perfect detail the data entry of God, the record of God that contains every sin everyone has ever committed. And it will come out as evidence of people's guilt and their conscience will also agree with the record of God that it is a perfect record of their iniquities, of their sins. And this is why... What God has done in the new covenant is of inestimable value because there is nothing that we can do to rid ourselves of this stain, this crimson. There's nothing that will blot out the red that we have. Only God in his grace fulfills and supplies the answer to the greatest fundamental need of man through the new covenant of Christ's blood. Christ's blood. We know that we have sinned against God, but many people do not know how to rid themselves of that sin. And that's precisely what what God sent Jesus to do. As a matter of fact, the old covenant prepared us for this. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. We're told this, that the, one of the aspects or one of the uses of God's law, as you may know, is that the law points us to Christ. That's one of the uses. It not only condemns us, but it also points us to the remedy of our condemnation. Galatians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 23, it says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. We were shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ. For what reason? So that we might be justified by faith. 
Now, that work of justification, if you turn over with me to Romans chapter 3, came because the remedy for sin came. Justification came by faith because the remedy, the answer, the sacrifice for sin came with it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is the universal problem of, of the human race right there in one verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean, the glory of God? Why didn't it say all have fallen short of the law of God? Well, because of course the law of God is a mere reflection of His glory. All it is, it's sort of an analogous description of the moral glory of God. And therefore, to fall short of the glory of God is to be out of step with the law of God. And he says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Propitiation in His blood. That's Hebrews. That's the book of Hebrews. It says, this was to demonstrate His righteousness Watch this, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That's talking about the old covenant. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. In other words, God did not deal with the sins of his people in the old covenant. He dealt with them in the new covenant, in Christ, on the cross. That happened at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's important for us to see this redemption, this propitiation, the forgiveness of sin under the new covenant for what it is. It is the manifestation of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's what Titus says in Titus chapter 2 verse 11. It is the revealing of the grace of God. God's grace has been uh, opened up to us. We can see it now. We know the nature of it, what it is, how it is accomplished, how it came, and how it is applied to us in Christ. In Christ. It is the fulfillment of all of God's promises where redemption and forgiveness are contained. It shows us wherein our forgiveness is found. It shows us where and in whom this forgiveness is now made available to us. Not in the sacrificial system of Israel, but in the Lamb of God, by faith in His sacrifice. While the Old Testament was given to regulate sin, it was given to govern sin. Romans even tells us it was given to intensify sin, to spread sin, that sin might become exceedingly sinful. So, in other words, that we would see sin for what it is. For what it is. The new covenant is given to remove sin. These, in, these uh, same promises were experienced in the old covenant, maybe on a case-by-case -case basis. The author of the new covenant prophecy is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah experienced the grace of God. He experienced forgiveness, the forgiveness of his sin. But that's on an individual, personal level. But what never came was a sweeping covenantal revival 
among all of the people of God. What Jeremiah experienced personally, in other words, brothers and sisters, we experience corporately as we become the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. This is what Isaiah was talking about when he says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You see that? Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. Even when it says, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. You want to have the best of the land, which is now obviously indicative of spiritual prosperity. Well, how does that happen? Not on the basis of your obedience, because we know what that looks like. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says that. I'm in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, there's only one little problem here with this incredible promise of your sin being, you know, though it was like crimson, it will be like wool. God will give you the best of the land, but there's one problem. If you disobey, if you rebel, the question is, who of us has not disobeyed? I mean, we could go person by person in this room and ask, have you rebelled? And there's not a single person in here that can say, I have not rebelled. I have obeyed everything perfectly down to this very day. No, my dear friends, there's only one person that fulfills the requirements of the law. Who is that? Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says that Christ became a curse for us. We should have been cursed, but he became a curse for us us. Jeremiah wrote of this, but he doesn't just say the new covenant will remove our sin. Oh, th think of it. It gets, it gets better. It gets better. It is not just that God removes our sin, but God releases us from the reproach of sin. The prophecy goes on to say, not only will he be merciful to their iniquities, but listen to this astounding statement. And I will remember their sins no more. Now, if you come to that statement from a, a perspective of the attributes of God, let's say you are, you are struggling with, wait a minute, isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know everything? How can God forget something? <laughs> and surely that is not at all what the prophecy means and the literary device that is being used here is to show us what God is doing is He is not epistemologically forgetting our sin in the sense of God's own mind has been somehow, you know, has some sort of divine amnesia. That is not what's going on here. But what's going on here is that God, when it says he will remember our sins no more, it, says, it, it literally means he will never remind us of these things again. And I say that 
Because if you look to the book of Hebrews, we are told that very thing in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews brings this very thing up again. And he, I think it helps interpret what this means. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, this is what it says. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So what is the author of Hebrews trying to stress? He's trying to stress the all-sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. That unlike the old covenant, when the sacrifices would be conducted year after year, day after day at the, at the tabernacle and then the temple, what that was was ultimately just a reminder, a habitual, perpetual reminder of sins. Every year we had to reminded, be reminded of how sinful we are. But the sacrifice of Christ, because it is never to be repeated again, there is a sense in which your sins will never be thrown in your face again. Isn't that glorious? When we are condemned, He is faithful. When we are condemned, we only need to look at Christ. When the condemnation of our sin comes and presents itself before us, all we need to, to do is to look at the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ and remember the words that Jesus spoke. It is finished. Why do you keep bringing up that which I have forgotten? It sounds like this grace is too good to be true. Boy, people would be tempted to say, if that's the way it is, then why don't we just sin so that grace would even abound? You know the answer to that argument. May it never be, right? God forbid. By no means. Strongest negation in the Greek language. Absolutely not. How shall we sin how should we who died to sin live in it any longer? That's his whole point. But this is the efficacious nature of the sacrifice of Christ. So much so that God will not reproach us anymore in this covenant. We don't have a continual reminder of the sacrifice that is necessary for our sins because Jesus has done it all. And this is where the Catholic Church has completely erred. In the Mass, what is it? The Mass is supposedly a re-sacrificing of the body of Christ. That is the complete opposite of the argument of Hebrews. That is, in fact, blasphemous. Because by one offering where he no longer needs to offer himself ever again. You see, this is why Hebrews spends so much time, matter of fact, over and over and over again. The book of Hebrews reiterates this sacrifice, reiterates the sufficiency of this sacrifice. Chapter 9, verse 14. Chapter 9, verse 26. Chapter 9, verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 10. Chapter 10, verse 14. Over and over. You think the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand something? Once for all, remember, that Greek phrase literally means once without the ability to be repeated. <laughs> Look up the lexical entry of that phrase. Once without the ability to be repeated. The sacrifice of Christ cannot be repeated. And so there is no remembrance of sin. That's the way the author is arguing for the all-sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. 
Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 to see this all-sufficiency and how it takes away the continual remembrance of sin and also abolishes the temporal sacrifices that go with it. This is very important to a first-century Jew that all he knows is those sacrifices and that to be without them is to be without hope. To be without those perpetual sacrifices was to be without atonement. It was to be without the possibility of being accepted before the Lord. And now we're being told those things are gone. Hebrews 10.10. By this, the, the, when he says by this, he's speaking about the, the emergence of the new covenant. He says, he says, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You see the parallel? But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifices for sins for all time. That's remarkable, folks. That means the sins that you will commit tomorrow, the sacrifice has already been given for that sin. He sat down. Look at the parallel. Standing daily, right? That's uh, verse 11. Verse 12. This one, but he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time onward, that time onward, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, Jesus made atonement. He ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. And the only thing that remains is for all of his enemies to become a footstool for his feet, which is just quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, for what purpose? To show the absolute sovereignty and dominion of the Messiah. His exaltation, in other words. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified past tense. Uh, the ladies this week we looked at the doctrine of definitive sanctification. Yeah, that's what we do at our ladies' study. I looked at, uh, and yes, I'm teaching the ladies' study. Some of you are like, what are you doing at the ladies' study? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm teaching the ladies' study. First time I've ever done that. It's been a, tro a, a true blessing. Well, this week we were studying definitive sanctification. The once for all break with a sinful lifestyle. Not the once for all uh, sinless perfection. No, no, you'll never achieve that. But God has taken you out of the world. And that's what that's talking about. And that's what this is talking about. So the, the final benefit of the new covenant is that Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin completely. In other words, he is a perfect, all-sufficient Savior. I don't know how else to preach this. I was sitting here writing my, or sitting there writing my manuscript thinking, I, I grope for language to harness the glory of the new covenant. Maybe if I shout it, it'll get across better. But that's what it is. It is the perfect, all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
His blood removes our sin. It cleanses our conscience. It eradicates even the remembrance of our sin so that we do not need daily, like the Old Testament priests, to, to have somebody stand and minister on our behalf. The great high priest of our confession. He has made a complete end of our sin. And now he sits down to intercede for us. Our daily needs, they might cause us to travail. Our daily needs, they might cause us to pace back and forth in anxiety. But Jesus sits in the presence of all of our needs with perfect sovereign resignation. He is not moved by our needs. You sick? Jesus is not shaken. The finances in trouble? Jesus is not, he's not worried. That doesn't mean he doesn't care. What that means is when someone sits down in the face of trouble, sits down in the face of, 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 of turmoil and tribulation, that either means there is nothing they can do about it and they've given up, or they are perfectly in control. And that is exactly what Jesus is. He is ascended to the right hand of the power on high, and it's a sign for us to know that our daily needs are taken care of. Our high priest will never stop interceding on our behalf. But what about the old covenant? Look at verse 13, Hebrews 8. When he said, a new covenant, uh, literally the author here just quotes the word new, kainos. He says, when he says new, he has made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Is ready to disappear. That is what he has done. By bringing in a new, what he's saying here is the, the, the final result. So you have the final benefit. And what is the final benefit? Oh, that we will all know the forgiveness of sins in the new covenant. What is the final result? This is the final result. That we will all experience the supremacy of the new covenant. The abiding superiority of the new covenant. The sacrifice of Christ not only results in the total perfection of the worshiper, but it also results in a reconstitution of this phrase uh, found there in verse 10, where he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now it is the people under the new covenant. That is God's people. And if you are connected to the new covenant, this is what you are connected to. You are connected to a better covenant, it says. It, you are connected to a better, to better blood. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. You have a better mediator. That is uh, Hebrews 8, 6, and in other places. You are connected to a better covenant built on better promises, resulting in a better resurrection and a better inheritance. Everything about this covenant is better, better, better. 
So what we're looking at here in verse 13 is the supremacy of the new over the old. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 just to show you that the Apostle Paul was lockstep with this understanding of the superiority of the new covenant over the old. 2 Corinthians 3.10 For indeed, what had glory, that's talking about the old covenant, in this case, has no glory because of the glory, that's the new covenant, that surpasses it. In other words, the old covenant has no glory. Go to Israel today. I've been there a couple times. Go stand on the Temple Mount. No glory whatsoever. As a matter of fact, there is a Muslim pagan shrine that sits on top of, of the, um, the Temple Mount. You want to talk about no glory? The audience of the book of Hebrews probably received the letter of Hebrews somewhere in the vicinity of the late 60s. 67, 68, 69. Okay, this is where commentators position the book, and one of the main reasons why they do that is because no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem is mentioned of the destruction of the temple, which happened at 70 A.D. Now think of this. You are in, you're sitting in church, and someone is reading the book of Hebrews to you and telling you that the old is ready to disappear. And in a year or two, you see the temple destroyed in front of your eyes. God sealed his word with this incredible sign of what Jesus said when he said, I leave your house desolate. Not one stone will be left upon another. And Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. Stop looking at a brick building, stone building. He says, something greater than the temple is here. In other words, in 70 AD, what happened was that the, the very center of Jewish worship was destroyed. It was removed. And Jesus now, by making that statement, he's saying that the, 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 the new temple, the, the, the epicenter for true worship is now me. And if you want to go to where the worship is, go to Christ. Millions of dollars are spent every year in churches on worship. You got to have the cutting edge technology. You got to have the cutting edge lights. The cutting edge, you know, the, you, you need the fog machine. You need the strobe lights in some some places. You you, you got to have all the latest equipment. You you got to have all the latest technology to go along with it. You got to hire a worship staff. You got until you get CD quality worship. And brothers, that was great worship. I don't need, that was CD quality. I would buy that CD and worship to that, okay? But all that money spent only to be reminded that true worship is found not in a synthesizer, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That worship is now personal. 
It's not mechanical anymore. Now our worship, the men, great, we're going from the women's study to the men's study. And the men, we are studying communion with God, John Owen. And one of the things that Owen is presenting before us to get us to have greater and truer worship, what is he doing? Is he telling us how to conduct our worship services? No, he's not. Have you noticed that, guys? He's telling us how beautiful Jesus is. That is where true worship resides, and that is what the new covenant has done. It has removed all of the earthly vestiges, the sacrificial system, the laver, the altar, the the temple. He has removed the priesthood. He has removed all of those earthly vestiges and replaced it with what? Jesus Christ. How do we live in light of the new covenant? How do we live practically in light of the glory of the new covenant that we have seen, these massive realities, these cataclysmic covenantal truths that we've been looking at here? How do we do that? It's very practical, do you know? It's very practical. Just go back through verse 9 through 12 with me again, and you'll see this. You'll see this. First, We should see ourselves as being separate from the world. Why? Because in the new covenant, we have a new and greater exodus. You remember what is being said there, that it is greater than when he led them out of Egypt. That means in the new covenant, we have a greater exodus, a greater exodus leader. And certainly, Jesus was that exodus leader. That is why why, uh, the exodus event is tied into Jesus Christ. I think that's Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. And so we should see ourselves as separate from the world, and unlike Israel, we should see ourselves as being preserved by God, which means we need to trust in the preserving power of God in the new covenant. Trust that God will take care of us, that he will care for us, like a husband cares for his bride. Secondly, We should seek to inform ourselves with the Word of God as much as possible. Look at verse 10. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. In other words, you have the Word of God internalized now. It has been written on your heart through regeneration. God educates you in the deepest, most profound place of who you are. In your heart in your mind, the most existential level. God is there to inform your mind so that you would walk in obedience to Him. He puts His law in our hearts for one supreme purpose, that we would delight to do it. And so we need to to evaluate. Is the law of God a burden? Are the commandments of God burdensome to us? Well, he wrote it on your heart so that you would delight in it, not so that you would grumble under it. Third, we should also seek, again, to have greater communion with the triune God. Why? Because the new covenant means we are in perfect fellowship with God. Look at the end of verse 10. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Remember what I said about that phrase. They shall be, I will be their God. They will be my people, 
that goes back, all the way back, to the book of Genesis. That's what God told Abraham. That's what God told Israel. That's what God told Moses. That's what God told the prophets. That's what God has been telling his people from day one. That his whole purpose is to unite us together in this communion bond. Us and God. We and him. The church and God. United together in perfect harmony and unity and fellowship. We have a relationship with God. You know, people say today it's not about religion. It's about relationship. Well, you know, that's real cheesy and corny. I get that. But they speak better than they know. Because, in fact, that relationship is so profound, it binds the whole Bible together from start to finish so that the Bible ends in Revelation 21 with God saying this very thing. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And so, in the New Covenant, we should have deeper, greater fellowship, communion with God. What does that look like? I know it's one thing to say to have greater communion with God. It's very simple. You need to make time for God, number one. You need to make time with your Bible. You need to make time meditating on the things of God, prayer, and, and fellowship with one another. Guess what? Sometimes the communion that we have with God is mediated through the way that we commune with, it, with one another. Certainly that's the way that John wrote his letter. Your capacity or lack thereof to love the brethren may in fact be an indication of your capacity or lack thereof to love God. And so what I'm saying is that your communion with God is inextricably connected with your communion with one another. It is not calling you to a mystical isolationism where you go into the woods with your journal and stare at your navel. That is not communion with God. Communion with God is a lot deeper and more profound than that. I know. Fifth, we should rejoice, finally, rejoice with unspeakable gratitude and brokenness. Because of the grace that is given to us in the new covenant. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. The God who alone is qualified to truly reproach us for our sins. The God who knows us better than we know ourselves. The God that sees all our sins of omission and has a perfect record of them, as it were, remembers them no more. Oh, the Christian life is a life of broken gratitude, of a broken heart, of a gratefulness to God and to His grace for what He has done. And last of all, because we receive of the grace of God in this way, I can only say that we are in the new covenant called to imitate Him. And he'll get to that in the letter. We are called to imitate God. That even as God has been forgiving and forgetful to us, we too, towards one another. Paul says, bear with one another. <laughs> Forgive one another, he says. Be kind to one another. Does that sound like God? Yeah. yeah. That's how God is with us. 
Be, he says, comfort one another. Encourage one another. In other words, what the new covenant teaches us is that we need to emulate the attributes of God because this is the kind of new covenant God that we have. We have a, new, we have a God who wants us to be image bearers of his own magnificent glory. And that begins with the way that we treat one another. May God give us the grace to do that for his glory and for the good of our church. Let's pray. Father, Lord, um, it is difficult for us to even conceive of the infinite grace that has been shown to us through Christ. It is difficult for us, Lord, to, to grab a hold of the reality that you have forgotten our sin. And Lord, we pray that in the new covenant we would live by grace through faith that we would be motivated, as the Apostle Paul says, faith working through love. Lord, we just ask that you would give us these grateful hearts that we've spoken of here, that we would see the grace of God in the new covenant, that we have been forgiven so much. You only know. And Father, we pray as we move forward that you would lead us to live a life not of condemnation, not of uh, looking inwardly until finally we lose ourselves and our own selves, as it were, but looking outside as the new covenant itself would direct us away from self and looking to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, and to his all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross for our sin. In other words, Help us to look upon Jesus, the high priest, the apostle of our confession. We ask that you would give us help to do that, Lord, by faith, by your strength, not our own strength, by your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.